I want to invite you to open your Bibles tonight. I want to talk by, about a subject that's very real in my own life. And I would studied it. I've read it many times and hadn't really understood it. So I decided to preach on it. And then I had to study it. Um, it's in Matthew chapter 11 and verses 28, 29, and 30. And uh, in this verse, Jesus is talking, and uh, he's been uh, explaining to countries the danger of rejecting the gospel of Jesus Christ. Uh, in the context, he's been talking about uh, woe unto thee, Chorazin, woe unto thee, Bethsaida, for if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. Uh, I say unto you, it shall be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in the day of judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, which are exalted above unto heaven, shall be brought down to hell. For if the mighty works which have been done in thee had been done in Sodom, it would have repented until this day. Well, this is the context, and he's explaining many different principles here, a lot of them related to future judgment. And then he says this, Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. That's verse 28. Then he says, Take my yoke upon you, and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and you shall find rest unto your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Let's go to the Lord in a word of prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you for your goodness. We thank you for your love. We thank you for your eternal word, for your word, which never changes, which shall always be. The heaven and earth shall pass away, but your word shall continue on forever. And we thank you for the lessons it teaches us, for the eternal truths that uh, we can uh, grab a hold of and apply in our daily lives and really find rest unto our souls. We thank you, and I ask you just to bless uh, each person here, each family here, and bless the message to your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, I will give you rest. That's a call to salvation. I explained this morning what happened to me in my call to salvation. I'm not going to repeat that, but this part of it is first a general call to salvation. Come unto Jesus Christ, you who are burdened, you that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. True rest only comes from Jesus Christ, period. Uh, You can try and make a substitute, but it won't work very well. Then he says, take my yoke upon you and learn of me. All right. Uh, Now that's a call to service. Okay, that's a call to sanctification. Yoke up with Jesus Christ. And he says, uh, and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and you shall find rest unto your souls. And then he says, there's a consequence of doing that. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. It gives the impression or at least the, the side conclusion that. If you're not under his yoke, you'll be under someone else's yoke. might be your own. But whatever other yoke you put on yourself in order to try and work in this life, uh, it's not going to be easy and it's not going to be light. But if you take the yoke of Jesus Christ on you, it will be easy and it will be light. 
He says that. Now, I'm going to get into a personal testimony here uh, because I arrived at a point in my life where when I read this verse, we were in Peru, and we had a lot of things going, and the Lord was blessing, but I was getting wiped out by so much work. And at one point in time, I turned to the Lord and I said, God, you say that your yoke is easy and your burden is light, and my yoke ain't easy and my yoke ain't light, and so something's wrong. And God just simply said, you got the wrong yoke, kid. And I stopped and I had to reflect, okay, how do I correct this situation? How do I identify and then get under the correct yoke? Because I really wanted to change. In fact, I got so bad that I wrote a poem, kind of like a poem to God. I don't know. David wrote Psalms. I'm not that eloquent. But this, I wrote this uh, on the 12th of October, 1988. Okay. At that point in time, we had started two churches. I'd helped. We had started our own Christian school, and I'd helped start about 30 other Christian schools. We had a drug rehab center. A lot of things were going on, and the Lord was blessing. But I was wiped out. And uh, at one point in time, I just wrote this poem called Missionary Pits-Faithful. And it's directed to the Lord. I did what I could. Only one understood. Only one ever could. His name is Jesus. Failures abound, depressions surround, only one's not aground, his name is Jesus. Family is sad, brothers are mad, only one is not bad, his name is Jesus. Darkness, not light, weakness, not might, only one is in sight, his name is Jesus. Soul out of gear, worry and fear, only one draweth near, his name is Jesus. The young ones fly, the old ones die, only one stays by, his name is Jesus. Out of control, no fishing pole, only one reached the goal, his name is Jesus. I am in him, and I am his twin. Only one had to win, and he did. His name is Jesus. Thanks be to God who always causes us to triumph in Christ. 2 Corinthians 2.14, love lifted me sincerely, Bill, Jeremiah 33.3. All right. Now, I share that with you because that was the point of sort of a reality check in my life. And this verse that we're studying tonight sort of brought uh, that experience, brought me to this verse, and this verse made me think about how to work for the Lord and how not to work for the Lord, uh, how to work for Christ and how not to work for Christ, whether in the ministry uh, as a missionary or as a pastor, assistant pastor, deacon, uh, or any other Christian, because I was a Christian doing many things for the Lord before I ever became involved directly in a church ministry. And this applies to everyone. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me. Well, let's look at yokes for a minute. When we went to Uruguay, 
Ellie and I had just gotten married, and um, I'd already, I've already talked about our call to Uruguay, so I now want to talk to you about my call to Peru. We went to Uruguay, and we were, uh, I don't want to get my messages confused here, but uh, we went, we were living right next to the milkman for the community, all right? And he was a really neat guy. He had about five cows, and every morning, early in the morning, the whole community would come form a great big line, and he would pour out fresh milk into their bottles, which they would bring. He'd milk the cows early, take the containers of milk, stick them in a big uh, trough of water to keep it cool, and then dish out the milk. And he fed his cows with corn, and he would broadcast the corn, and then he had uh, a very interesting tractor called an ox. He had an ox, and uh, he would strap that ox to his plow, and he would go, and one day I said, this is really something. I had never seen an animal quite that size. I'd seen, you know, cattle before, but I mean, this critter was enormous, and uh, <laughs> and so I asked him, could I walk with him a while, and he said, sure. And so we were talking and walking, and the ox was pulling the plow, and he was plowing and cultivating with his ox, and I was walking alongside of him. And I mean, when he started, all he did was go like you'd go to a horse. That's all you heard. And that ox, all of a sudden, his whole body and shoulders, (laughs) he just hunched up, and he started to walk. And I mean, you talk about raw power. That ox knew what it was doing, knew where it was going, and nothing was going to stop it. All that farmer did was hold that thing down, and he wasn't that big a guy, so it wasn't all that easy. But he held that plow down, and that ox just ripped that soil apart. didn't matter what he hit or where he went. He just went straight ahead, and I mean everything went flying, and he just held on, and that ox pulled a furrow. And then that ox turned around at the end and went back and did the next furrow. But it was an amazing sight to see the power in that animal, and it was nonstop. Now, that was experience number one. Okay, we leave Uruguay and uh, for a break. Uh, school year was finished. That was why we went. We were about a year in the States, and then we go back to Uruguay for a second year. But... We decided to finish our honeymoon going back to the States after the first year in Uruguay because we got married, and two weeks later we were in Uruguay. So we decided, well, let's stop in Chile and let's stop in Peru, and uh, we'll just spend two days in each place uh, and sort of honeymoon on the way back to the States. So when we got to Chile, you know, I wound up preaching in a plaza down there. Uh, Good. Uh, We got to uh, Peru. And we were doing our sightseeing thing, and by the Plaza San Martin, uh, which is the main center plaza in Lima, uh, there was a huge crowd of men. I don't know, 400, 500 men, something like that. It was a big crowd, and all men. And so, uh, you know, I said to Ellie, let's go and see what's there, but watch your pocket. And, uh, <clears throat> and so we kind of just nestled up to the outskirts of the group, and I asked, uh, what's going on? And the guy said, well, he's a communist, and he's talking. And I said, how terrible. And uh, he, he, uh, 
I, I started to question him about it because in the United States, I had just finished preaching 10 years worth of debating communism versus capitalism on college campuses all over the United States. I was sort of primed. I was up to date on the subject, in other words. And so, but I asked them, you know, and I posed a few questions in my Spanish. I had one year of Spanish under me because we'd been in Uruguay one year by that time. And so as I spoke, then probably because of my accent and not mastering Spanish very well, more and more people turned. And so I was talking, and the more people turned, then I talked a little louder. And then more people turned, I talked a little louder. And it wasn't three, four minutes. The whole crowd had turned to me. And so the guy that was in charge, just a kid, a young communist kid, uh, who'd probably never been challenged much before, uh, he says, what's going on over there? And I just said, Jesus Christ is going on over here. I'll debate you. Capitalism versus communism. Jesus Christ versus the devil. Guess whose side you're on? And everybody laughed, of course. And so uh, so we did. I started to, uh, I, I debated. I gave my uh, presentation, you might say, my arguments against what he was saying. And then he started to debate his turn. And so he started to talk. And some of the people in the crowd began to boo him down because they were actually on my side. And so uh, I said, no, 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 don't, don't, you know, let him talk. This is a debate. He talks, I talk. He talks, I talk. That's a debate. Let's listen. Uh, and so they quieted down, and he was able to speak, and he said his thing. Well, then he finished, and I'm starting my rebuttal. And as I start, then some of the communist revolutionaries start to boo me down. And then he says... No, 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 this is a debate. He talks, I talk. Let him talk. And I said, this is crazy. I've got a communist revolutionary telling his other revolutionaries to be quiet so that I can preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. I said, only God can do that. And it was true. And it was just bizarre. But I was limited in time because we had a flight to catch. So I was only there about an hour, an hour and a half with Ellie. And uh, and so when we quit... Everybody came up and said, who are you? Where are you from? Well, that was my call to Peru. Right then, I know. I said, these communists are here day in, day out, hour after hour. We came here for one hour and a half, one day, and we made a little difference. But they're going to win. Therefore, and the Lord just sort of worked on me. He said, you got to get back. So we went back to the States, then back to Uruguay for a year. And then from Uruguay, we went directly to Peru without ever going back to the States to start the work, which happened there. That's a call, a situation, a circumstance of a, in this case, a people in danger due to false doctrine that can only really be solved by changed hearts. And the only way to change the heart was to preach the gospel but in the context of what they were doing. It's Karl Marx, the atheist, who let one of his own kids starve to death against Jesus Christ. So this was the third call, actually, on my life. Salvation, uh, then leave the Navy, which I haven't told you about yet, and then uh, Uruguay, and now fourth call, okay, uh, Peru. And then... Uh, when we went to Peru, uh, about two weeks after we got to Peru, I'm sweeping the floor, 
and I'm having a conversation with the Lord. Now we're getting into my call to France. All right. Now, the reason for this is that when I was a young Christian, I had recently gotten saved and I was listening to missionaries back in the States come. And of course, every missionary, when he talks to you about his field, his field is the field. You know that his field is the only field. Everybody come to my field. And so I heard these guys. And I mean, they were convicting, convicting. And and I was convicted when I'd hear them. I heard old Bob Hayes. He's in heaven now from Ghana. He was famous. He was like the I don't know whether you'd call him the Moses of Ghana or whatever. But I mean, he was he was very well known in those days. And uh, and others would come. And every time a missionary would speak, I get a burden for that country. And so one day I was talking to the Lord and I said, God, all these missionaries, they have a burden for their country. I have just counted that I have now 16 different countries on my burden list. So uh, what do I do with that? And the Lord spoke to me. He said, don't worry about it. The commandment is go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. You just follow me and I'll guide you step by step. So my calling or a series of callings, if you will, is different from some people. And that is why. First, we went to Uruguay, and after that, to Peru. When we arrived in Peru, I was thinking three, four years, start a church. Peru is pretty open to the gospel. Uh, Chile was the most open country and the easiest one to plant churches in. Peru was about second at that time. We're talking about 19... Uh, Uruguay. 1982. Okay, so we got there in November 1982. And um, and so I'm sweeping and thinking, Okay, Lord, we're I'd like to go to Norway next. Okay, well, that's, of course, me, because my parents came from Norway and I kind of like Norway. And I uh, just sort of wanted to maybe it's the same kind of burden that Paul had for Israel. I don't know. Uh, But uh, I wanted Norway. And the Lord said, you can go to Norway, but you have to go to France first. And I said, I don't want to go to France. And God said, France first. And I didn't want to become a Jonah. So I said, okay, France first. Now, when you get a call like that, you're getting a call to go somewhere where you don't really want to go. And the Lord speaks to you. And it's not an audible voice from the outside, but it is a real voice from within. It's the Holy Spirit of God talking to you as you communicate. You're in prayer. And a lot of times Bible college students and others ask me, well, how does that work? How do you how do you do that? And my answer is, listen, usually when we pray, it's kind of like a one way telephone conversation. We pick up the phone and we say, dear God, I would like da-da-da-da-da, and I got this problem, da-da-da-da-da, and we talk for a while to God, and then we hang up the phone. I prayed. The problem with that is, is that God never got a chance to answer you. So the instruction is to get answers from God, don't hang up the phone so quick. After you talk, wait. There is a Bible verse that says, wait on the Lord. And he will direct thy paths. 
Wait on the Lord, and he will strengthen your heart. Waiting on the Lord means wait. Think about Moses when he went up to Mount Sinai, when he went up on the mountaintop. How long did Moses wait there before God appeared? A month and ten days. Talk about protocol. But it is a very important person you're about to talk to. And he's not going to wait for you. You wait for him. Just because of who he is. He is the Lord of Lords. He is the King of Kings. He is the ultimate authority, not only on earth, but in the universe. He created it all, and he can snap his finger, and Satan's done for, and Satan knows it. God told Satan about Job, okay, you can do this, that, and the other, but don't touch his life, for example. And Satan did. Satan followed God to the letter, because Satan actually knows that God can snuff him in a heartbeat. And so I waited on the Lord, and I got the answer that I didn't want to hear, but I was obedient to the Lord. And then after that, there was confirmation. Confirmation is key, because once we got, well, here's how it happened, and then you'll understand what I'm talking about. We're still in Peru. The ministry has now been passed over. I have a Peruvian pastor for the church. We have an assistant pastor. We have a Peruvian in charge of the drug ministry. We have Peruvians in charge of the Christian school. All ministry, second church started, Peruvian pastor. Everything is going, and basically I'm out of a job because all the Peruvians are doing the work. Then I'm ready to go and do the same thing again somewhere else. All right? Uh, that's the rule. Now, once uh, once you get to that point and everything is rolling, then I'm praying for the next step. And I have to get ready to leave. I want to go back to the States with my wife and uh, prepare for changing cultures and changing languages to get ready for French. Okay? The place where I didn't want to go. Um then what happens is that uh, two weeks before our departure date, it, uh, it was in December, we were there for Christmas, and we were in the States for New Year's, uh, 1992. And what happens was is that a family, a, a, a lady in our church, very faithful member, her daughter, who was proven, married a Frenchman. And I knew of him, but I'd never met him. He'd never come. But all of a sudden, he shows up with Victoria's uh, daughter. And uh, the daughter's name is Anna Maria. The Frenchman's name is Regis. They're very close friends. Um, Anna Maria had a Catholic background, and Regis is French zero, you know, atheist or agnostic at least. Nice guy. Um, But he comes two weeks before we are going to leave, and we get to talking. And so he finds out where we're going eventually in about a year. And he says, well, I work for Total Oil. I'm in the finance department. They're sending me, because I speak Spanish, they're sending me to Colombia. I've got an apartment in downtown Paris. Will that help you any? And I said, yeah. You bet. Uh, And so one year 
before going to France, the Lord is already clearing a pathway for us to go. So we have that apartment. We get to France. Confirmation number two. I need a bank account. Okay. Well, excuse me. I jumped the gun. Once I get to France, I will need a bank account. So I'm in California at another missions conference, and a brother who I hadn't met before, he comes up and said, my name is Kevin. I work for the Bank of the West. Do you know what that is? And I said, no. And uh, he says, well, that's the National Bank of Paris. It's the same thing. But it works out here in California. It's an extension bank. Do you think you will need a bank account once you get to France? And I said, yep. And the reason is, is, and you can see how the Lord's working this together. I, he writes me a letter, and I stick it in my pocket. Uh, it's in, in an envelope sealed. Don't open it. When we get to France, I get down there, and I want to open a bank account, and the lady's kind of typical French. Oh, I don't know. <laughs> giving me a hard time because I'm a foreigner. And uh, do you have an address? Uh, yeah, got an address. Okay. And so, uh, so she's still hemming and hawing. And so I say, well, maybe this will help. I pull out the letter. I've never read it. Don't know what's in it, even to this day, actually. But I said, maybe this will help. So she gets the letter, and she opens it, and she reads it. And she says, one moment, please. And uh, up she goes. And I don't know what was in the letter, but the director of the bank read the letter and came down with instructions, and all of a sudden I was like the president of France. I mean, she said, yes, Mr. Hansen, yes, Mr. Hansen, we'll do this for you, yes, Mr. Don't have a clue. But you see the circle, the vicious circle that they try to put you in. If you don't have an address, you can't get a bank account. If you don't have a bank account, you can't get an address. And I had both provided to me by the Lord before I even set foot in France. So this is what I call confirmation of the call. God definitely wanted us in France. Uh, Even though I didn't want me in France, God wanted us in France. And so... This is how the Lord works. Now, getting back to the scriptures. Take my yoke upon you is the second invitation of Jesus Christ in verse 29. And a yoke is basically has, I've considered four illustrations or uh, usefulness Entities, you might say, that you draw from a yoke. One, the yoke speaks to unity. You're taking two and making them one. You're yoking two critters together. And in the case of the Lord, it's yoking you together with Jesus Christ. Uh, it speaks of learning. Okay, He says, uh, take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart. So there's things to learn about Jesus Christ in order to find rest for your souls as a servant of Jesus Christ. So unity, uh, endeavoring to keep the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. Um, Except the Lord build a house, they labor in vain that work. Then other than unity, it speaks of uh, learning. We're talking about that. And um, so you have education involved. And believe me, it's an education when you work with the Lord and for the Lord. You know that. The Word of God is our textbook. Uh, Yoke speaks of authority and submission. Uh, When you yoke up with God, of course, he's the authority and you submit to what God wants. The two ox, usually when they start out, you have a younger ox and an older ox, and the older ox teaches the younger ox. 
And I actually saw that uh, when uh, I was all wiped out in Peru. Then we took a break. I came back, and we were in Florida, and the girls went out to do uh, shopping or something. And they said, you want to go? No, I'll just stay here. So I was just resting and thinking. And I clicked on the TV, and a documentary about making yolks was on (laughs) the television set. And it explained how they did it. And they make one yolk uh, or one part of the yolk, and then they had a slightly smaller one for a baby ox. So you got daddy ox, pardon the expression, and then baby ox. And they put the two together. And, of course, the little one has got more wiggle room than the big one. The big one's trained, know what he's doing. They tie them up together, and then the big ox starts to move. And the little ox is there, and he's happy to go with daddy ox, and he's walking along. But, you know, he's never done this before. And he doesn't like to be trained. He doesn't like to be told what to do. So uh, he goes for a while, and then he sees some nice grass or something over there, and he goes like that. But, of course, he's yoked up, so bloop, he gets uh, jerked back into place. Uh, and, uh, and then, uh, they keep going and the same thing happens. He sees something else. Maybe there's, uh, some water. Maybe he gets thirsty. Who knows? But he keeps going through this process of, uh, jerking around. But Daddy Ox, he never stops. He knows what to do and he knows there's work to do. Uh, he's yoked up to do the job and he just keeps going. And Baby Ox, he's kind of nervous and frustrated and doesn't like all this stuff and, Finally, in the documentary, he gets frustrated. And you can see it. He's just getting, he's going like this all the time. And then all of a sudden, all four legs stop. Does, it, does Daddy Ox stop? No. Daddy Ox keeps going, and all of a sudden, you've got four extra little plows going along. And so, <laughs> and then he either walks with Daddy or he breaks a leg. And, and so, and that's, and that's how they train. And that's how they train. And eventually... He just gets used to walking with Daddy. And after a while, he kind of likes it. He gets adjusted to it. And then little baby ox can look back, and in a sense, he says, well, look at all that work I did. Well, you see, this is what Jesus is talking to us about. You yoke up with God, and he does the heavy hauling. You yoke up with the Lord. He says, take my yoke upon you, because my yoke is easy And my burden is light. Now, when he's talking about an easy yoke, that means it's comfortable. It's designed to fit you. So it fits perfectly. You take a yoke and it doesn't fit the ox. It kind of bruises the ox. It's hard on the ox. And they're made out of wood. Jesus was a carpenter. And a lot of people don't realize it, but the population of Nazareth at the time of Jesus was approximately 210 people. That's not a lot of people. So I don't think he was a carpenter. I think he was the carpenter, like Joseph, his father. And the average size, well, Jesus' own family was, you know, what, seven, plus mom and dad, nine, uh, which would be about an average Jewish family. So you can do the math, 210 people, each family averaging seven or eight kids. You know, (laughs) there's not that many families involved. And he is the yoke maker. And so to make the yoke easy, they form it to the ox and then, or the oxen, and then they wrap it with leather to make it soft. And that's what he's talking about. The right-sized yoke 
and it's made soft. Easy means it fits well and it's comfortable. And then he says the burden is, uh, and, and my uh, burden is light. That means he doesn't have any problem pulling it. I mean, what problem is God going to have with pulling the load? He's a creator. So you have the almighty God wanting us to yoke up with him. And then he does the work. And we learn to walk along with him. And then we get to look back. And not only can we see all the work that we have done, (laughs) it's all him, but he rewards us for walking with him and letting him do the work together with us. Now, how's that for a deal? That is the plan of Jesus Christ. It's his work, not our work. He's doing the hauling, not us. All he wants us to do is yoke up with him. And he says, walk with me. Abide in me and I in you. That's what he says. That's the parable of the vine and the, and the branches, you know. If you abide in me and I in you, ask what you will and it shall be done. Ask of me. You abide in me that your joy might be full. That my joy might be in you and your joy might be full or perfected. I don't know about you, but I can... God has joy, and I, I just imagine his joy is pretty great. You know, I, uh, joy has all, God has all the emotions, but he says that uh, we can share in his joy, not our joy. What's the difference between his joy and our joy? Ever think about that? What's the difference between his peace and our peace? What we do by ourselves is always related to circumstances. And what we get from him is always related to our relationship. Can you control all your circumstances? No way, Jose. Can you always control your relationship to God? Absolutely, yes. So if you want consistency in your life, if you want productivity and fruitfulness in your life, All we have to do is yoke up with the master, let him do the work, walk with him, because he wants us to, he'll do the work, and he he created us in order to have fellowship with us, in order that he might love us and that we might love him, which he doesn't get from the angels. And so it's an amazing program that God has for us. Now, we've mentioned the yoke representing unity and education and authority. There's one more thing that that the yoke represents. Work. Why do you even put the yoke on? To work. The whole idea of a yoke is work. So, God wants us to work with him, not really for him. And there's a big difference there. There's a big difference. It is almost mind-boggling to me how someone can say they believe in the gospel, which means good news, and then think that they have to do something in order to earn their way into heaven. Gospel means good news. Is it good news when you say, 
Are you going to heaven? And someone answers, I hope so. Maybe. I'm trying. Where is the good news in that? If you are not going to make it, where are you going? You know. Hell is not a comfortable place. The image that Jesus used, like Gehenna, is the refuge dump outside of Israel, which they threw all their garbage in, and it was basically continually burning. And that's where they put the junk. Lima, Peru, outside the airport, while we were there, had a huge refuge dump, and it was always burning. And you would see from time to time the locos. They called them crazy people because they had been on drugs and they'd lost their mind. And they're wandering around in the garbage amongst the smoke and a little bit of flames here and there and the burning looking for something. I don't even know what they're looking for. They probably don't either. But it's a very, very bad situation. But it is typical of what hell in the Bible, what Jesus used as an example of hell. Hell probably is worse. But in either case, the analogy is there. And it's not good news to say, I hope so. If a person does not know where they're going when they die, you have not received good news. Assurance is part and parcel with the word gospel. Because if you don't have assurance, you're saying, I don't know whether I'll make it or not. And basically what you're doing is torturing yourself psychologically for your whole life with the hope that you might make it. That is not good news. Good news is, here's a gift. I give it to you. Good news is when mom or dad buys a present for their children and put it under the Christmas tree, they worked for it, they bought it, they wrapped it up, they put the name on it, and they stuck it under the tree. And then the child comes up and says, yeah, I got a free gift. Wow, And it's wonderful, and he loves it until January the 8th. And then Daddy comes up and says, well, that cost me a lot of money, so now, my son, you're going to have to pay me back. And everybody says, ooh. That's exactly what we do with God and salvation. If you're Protestant like I was without the free grace without the gift of the grace of God, or Catholic, or any other religion that has you work your way to heaven, it's not good news. The whole definition of gospel is shattered just by the fact that you're trying to pay for something that you can't pay for. So it's a free gift, and that's what makes it so wonderful. And you can receive it, and it's not too easy. It wasn't easy at all because it was God who paid the price. And the price was very, very high. The only perfect person that ever lived gave his life so that you and I could have his righteousness and avoid our judgment. He took our judgment and gave us his righteousness. That's amazing. That's amazing. And that's the good news. And that's the message Of the yoke. Jesus says, my yoke is easy. And my burden is light. So I want to just ask you. Whose yoke are you working under? Are you you kind of like me? That I 
was really working under my yoke, trying to do it all myself. And I knew the doctrine. Don't get me wrong. I knew all the ideas of grace. But the application was messed up because I never understood the importance of letting Christ do the work, not me. And so that's the same. A lot of us do that. It doesn't matter whether you're doing church work or what other kind of work, because everything we do is supposed to be for the glory of God anyway. It's all for the Lord. But he says, come unto me. That's salvation. If you haven't done that, you need to do that. Remember, it's good news, not bad news. It's good news, not psychological torture. It's good news, which means it's got to be all of grace, and it's permanent. And he knows you're weak. He'll know you make mistakes. But you don't have to persevere until the end in order to get in. He already has that all figured out. His sovereignty is not threatened by your weakness. Not for a second. And Jesus Christ is the only way that you can have assurance of salvation. And you won't have assurance of salvation by accepting Jesus Christ as an individual, but you have to accept him as a personal Savior so that he will come in. You invite him to come into your life and take control and be your Lord and Savior. That's salvation. And when he does that, the burdens go. The burdens go. Then the next thing to avoid is the Galatians chapter 1 problem. The Galatians were trying to perfect in the flesh that which was begun by faith. That is actually Pentecostal doctrine today. They preached, received Christ by faith, and then right away they teach you if you don't keep it up, you're going to lose your salvation, so they get saved again and again and again. Had that happened in Peru numerous times. Have it happened in France. Same thing. Same thing. And it's foolishness. When you understand grace, it's foolishness when you understand English and the word good news. And it's foolishness when you understand you don't have to suffer under the authority of Jesus Christ. He says, take my yoke upon you and learn of me and you will find rest unto your soul. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. What's your yoke like tonight? Are you willing to give it all to Christ? Are you willing to let him do the heavy hauling? My prayer is that everyone in here, if you're not sure, make sure. If you're getting a little bit burdened and heavy laden, get under the right yoke. And God will bless you for it. And you will be not only a blessing to yourselves, but to many others as well. Thank you.